Hey, it's Melissa Etheridge, and I've been talking to Vermont Tawana, and I'm telling you guys, elevate the state. This is the Vermont Tawana Podcast with Eli Harrington. Elevate the state. All right, Vermont one of the podcast, episode number four, Elevate the State. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and thank you to our friend Emart, who not only mixed together that intro, but provided the background music here. Thanks again to our good friend John the Sauceman Saucier, who provided that custom drop you here. Let's get one more of those drops in sauce. Put your grinders down and turn your radio up. This is the Vermont Iwana podcast. Oh, man, love it, love it. Thank you again, Sauce. Like I said, thank you all for being here. I am pumped to be back. We're trying to do this more frequently. We've got a lot of interesting stories and events coming up. So you need to check out HeddyVermont.com to find out about all of them. You want to be a part of the network. You want to know what's going on in politics and news and business and events, who's doing what, how to become a patient, what's going on in other states. HeddyVermont.com has got the information. Guys, we're building the network. So stay tuned. We're going to be announcing some fall events coming up very shortly. But today, we are talking a little bit of politics. We're talking about a Vermont politician, but this is still going to be relevant to people outside of the state of Vermont. And I know that we do have some listeners out there, and we thank every, each and every one of you. I've got one of the more interesting political figures and politicians that you're going to meet. His name is David Zuckerman. And here in Vermont, he is running for the lieutenant governor position in the Democratic primary. Dave Zuckerman's a guy who's been endorsed by Bernie Sanders, not once, not twice, not three times, 11 times. This guy's been getting endorsed by Bernie since way before it was cool, and that's one of the reasons why I think he's such an interesting character and why even if you're not in Vermont and don't know Vermont politics, you're going to get a lot out of this because if there's a Bernie Sanders political playbook, Dave has been following it to a T, and he's been proving that at the local level, at the statewide level, you can be somebody who's progressive, you can be somebody who takes bold positions on social issues, and you can also be somebody who gets something done. You know, that's the big knock on, on Bernie and on the, the Bernie bros, quote unquote, is that we're living in fantasy land. Oh, you'll never have universal health care. Oh, you'll never have this. You'll never have, well, listen, that's what they said about same-sex marriage. That's what they said about GMO labeling. Those are two issues where Dave Zuckerman was a leader in getting grassroots support. You know, these things didn't happen and he didn't get success because he had money behind him, because he you know, he was a good-looking guy with a, with a long ponytail, you know, and because he's so nice, he got it done because he goes out there and he gets grassroots support. Another thing about Dave, he's an organic farmer. How cool would that be in Vermont if we actually had somebody in, uh, in government who is representing directly the interests and concerns of farmers? According to his campaign, it's been over 50 years since we've had somebody in the executive branch who was actively farming. Wild to believe, but uh, Dave's got a really interesting background he went to UVM. He got involved in the early 90s as a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So he was inspired by Bernie 18 years ago. Signed up, volunteered, ended up running for office as a state representative, lost his first race, I think, by less than 60 votes, and came back and won, and has been serving as a representative, and then more recently, as Chittenden County State Senator ever since. All of this while starting up a farm at the Intervale, a small, he started with a couple acres, learned how to grow food, market it, sell it, 
all of this organically here in the Intervale, scaled up to now where he's a successful small businessman running an organic farm that employs people year round, um, and I think over a dozen in the summertime. They've got a CSA, they've got 20 acres of organic veggies, they've got chickens, they've got pigs. Um, so Dave is just somebody who's really shown you how, I don't think this is just a Burlington thing. You know, this is a uniquely Burlington story in that you'll even hear during our interview, Huck Gutman, who is Bernie Sanders' former chief of staff and co-author of his book, I couldn't make this shit up, Huck Gutman just happens to drive by the intervale where Dave and I are talking and starts yelling out the window about how he's pumped to support him. Talk about a real endorsement. You know, that's amazing to hear and uh, just such a cool Burlington story of a guy who's come up like this, but also one about progressive politics and politics in general and grassroots social movements. Part of why we like Dave and we like talking to Dave is that one of those social issues and movements at which he's been the forefront has been legalization. Well, it's been medical marijuana first, um, which he started working on back in the late 90s, you know, in the year 2000. You guys can remember all the way back then. But he's been consistent ever since he first ran for office. You know, he was telling me, and you'll hear about his first sign having Rasta colors on it so that people knew he was supportive of legalization. You know, he's been out there in front of it since way before it was cool. He doesn't have a financial interest in it. You know, but he's somebody who takes a position. If you, like he says, if you have the facts on your side, you know, then don't be afraid to take a position and defend it. And he's been out there literally for over 15 years talking about cannabis reform common sense. He's a big part of getting medical marijuana passed. I know that that was the first time I heard his name was as a, as a kid, as a young teen. And Mark Tucci, shout out to the godfather, you know, calling up my mom and asking who the hell the Zuckerman guy was that was talking about legalization on the floor of the house. So Dave's a guy who's got guts. You know, he's been, uh, he's been taking strong stances on social issues, but he's been backing them up. And unlike some politicians, he is able to work with people from all different beliefs. You know, as a farmer, he's got some things in common with people from out in the sticks, more so than he does with people who live in Chittenden County. You know, as a progressive, he's probably got more things in common with, uh, with urban city dwellers when it comes to some social issues, as he does from people out in the sticks. But the point is, he's been successful in moving legislation forward. And on the issue of cannabis reform, he has been a champion. Um, really, he's been out there in front of it. And look, it hasn't hurt his political reputation at all. You know, I mean, you talk about exit polls and referendums and what people support. Well, people support a guy, and they have for the last 18 years, who's been sticking his neck out there and talking about this issue, and not just doing it in Burlington and Chittenden County, but all over the state of Vermont. So Dave Z is running for uh, lieutenant governor. If you're voting in Vermont in the Democratic primary, you can find his name there. The primary date, as a reminder, Tuesday, August 9th, depending on when you're hearing this. Um, hopefully you've already registered. If it's early and you're hearing this before August 9th, you can go out and vote early in Vermont, up to 45 days before. Uh, but, you know, again, for all of you, even if you're not Vermonters, we, we're not talking inside baseball and just Vermont and Burlington stuff. You don't have to be a political insider. But I think just like Bernie Sanders inspired millions this year, just like Bernie Sanders inspired Dave Zuckerman 20 years ago when he was a UVM student and kind of just getting going and interested in politics, I think that Dave Zuckerman is somebody who can inspire all of us today and show that, look, you put the time in, you take the right steps, you can be bold and move big issues along.
without sacrificing or compromising your integrity. So we had a really good conversation. Um, I thank you again, Dave, for, uh, for taking the time to speak with me and for his campaign people for helping to set it up. So I hope you all enjoy the cannabis candidate, Mr. David Zuckerman. Dave, I want to start with a little bit about your, your background, um, especially how you got into to politics as a UVM student, right. you know, who then yeah. stayed here. And we're, yeah, we're here talking at the Intervale Farm. So um, I know this was a big part of kind of your origin well, we're story. Talking, and we're at the Intervale Center. Intervale Center, yes, yes. Intervale Important Farm is distinction. Down the road. I have a lot of friends down there. so Important yeah. distinction. So, um, you know, as a young guy graduating UVM, How'd you get involved in, in politics to begin with? Well, actually, it was even before I was graduating. I, uh, I was an environmental activist on campus and social justice activist. And in 92, I heard about Bernie Sanders, our congressman. And I thought, wow, there's uh, an independent from the two parties, someone who's not bought out by corporate politics and who just states what he believes. And he wins or loses based on straightforward, here's what I stand for. And that really inspired me to, to shed some of my cynicism about politics, as many young people mm -hmm. rightly, you were, you were the original, rightly have. You were the original Bernie bro. Well, I don't without, know. without the connotation. Uh, there, there were plenty of others as well, but ultimately, uh, <laughs> no. But I mean, I, I was inspired by Bernie in 92 the same way that so many people are inspired by him in 2016. And um, volunteered for his campaign, got to know a lot of other folks in the Burlington area who were very active in progressive politics, you know, moving a, an agenda of social and environmental justice forward. And I helped those folks uh, in their campaigns and uh, sort of merged as a campus organizer for many of them. And then I was asked to uh, consider running in 94. I hadn't actually quite graduated yet. And um, I did lose that race uh, by 59 votes. I did have Bernie's endorsement then. I've actually had, wow. I've had his endorsement 10 times, every House and Senate race. I'm the only candidate in this race that's actually ever been endorsed by Bernie. Wow, that's very impressive. And, and um, maybe more than anybody else ever has been. I don't know how many who else has been endorsed by Bernie yeah, ten I, times. I was going to say um, yeah, ten times. That's pretty good. And uh, and uh, then I and actually my first campaign to this topic, I had these uh, black and white signs with my name, which is very long, Zuckerman. It's a very long name, and I took. Uh, red, yellow, and green <laughs> markers and made streaks across underneath my name uh, to, uh, you know, indicate to many people my stance on cannabis reform. And um, I then, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I lost, but barely. And then I won in 96, and I've been uh, mm -hmm. fighting on these issues ever since. Well, that's, you know, one thing I want to ask, because it's really, this election season especially, you as a guy in your early 20s coming out, your first sort of campaign, not to mention you're still rocking the ponytail back then. I would imagine, I mean, frankly, it took some balls to, to get out publicly, you know, and in 96. On cannabis specifically? On cannabis, or? On cannabis specifically. Well, you know, and I know that wasn't your, your major plank, but where people give us a little bit of background in political history. I mean, 20 years ago, where right. this issue was at and what your reception was in Vermont. Well, talk about I, 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 you know, we do have to put a little context into it that I represented the UVM district. Right. So it wasn't quite as probably bold from that district as it might have been from some others. But, um, you know, I felt a real opportunity as someone representing a district that was both the UVM student district, but also the, quote, permanent residents in that area were also uh, very progressive-minded on this issue, on universal health care, on environmental reforms for, for a future for our kids. And so in some ways, being from that district... I actually felt there was a real obligation to push the envelope as far as possible because ultimately 
some folks from other districts couldn't be so bold on the issues. Right. And so there's both uh, an honor and an opportunity when you represent a district like that, but also a responsibility because if you don't push the issues, folks from other districts can't. And so, you know, I really pushed out on issues so that there'd be room for discussion so that other folks could have those discussions with their constituents. They could take away the myths that sometimes exist in the political world around some of these, quote, controversial issues. And, uh, and so I really felt that there was a role that I was supposed to play. And uh, what was interesting was I, you know, then ran for the Chittenden County Senate a number of years later and uh, really had an opportunity to um, see whether continuing to be bold on the issues would be the end of my involvement in the electoral process. Because to me, that's what I, you know, I had learned how to be that kind of political figure. Right. I felt very free by being clear about my positions on issues that I could go down there and then fight for them without looking over my shoulder. And, you know, if you're vague when you're campaigning, then you, you sometimes can't feel as, as liberated to really push once you're elected. And uh, I didn't hold back in my bid for the Senate. And I won. Yeah. Uh, labor groups, environmental groups, uh, human rights groups tended to support me. And um, that has continued. I mean, I've got the Sierra Club endorsement, the state employees. I'm voting for you. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Very well. Excuse me. Sorry. Oh, no, no problem. Um, no problem. Go. Feel free. You've got to go shake hands. Say hi. It's, uh, yeah, it's for Hedy Vermont. It's an online cannabis publication. I don't know if you know Huck Gutman, but... Oh, long time friend of Bernie's. Just, I was going to say, but only by name. Yeah. Thank you. I might even be at the market Saturday. We'll, we'll, we'll have our first sweet corn on Saturday. I'm going to be there this week for a bit. I'll see you. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Aye, that's pretty pretty classic Burlington Burlington stuff. That's one of right. one of Bernie's top lieutenants just shows up <laughs> to pick up his farm shares. We're talking and you yeah. know just sort of just sort of chatting out there and well not just pot. I mean progressive politics in general, right? I right. mean that's kind of the progressive politician, and we're talking about Bernie with good reason. That your sort of role is to push the envelope. You get to be true to yourself, you know. And then it seems like the hard part is when you got to come and oh yeah, you like that. You know, the hard is part yours? is, oh, of course, okay. yeah. <laughs> you know, the hard part is that you've actually got to get in there and negotiate and, and strike deals with, with the you rest do. of the folks who are, are you know, well, more, more in the middle. Well, I can tell you one story from a number of years ago when I was in the House and we passed one of the first GMO laws that uh, was going to make it so that the seed companies would be responsible mm. for economic and environmental damage, if there was any, from their seeds going from one, their, their pollen from one farm to another. And the reason we said it was the seed company's responsibility is because the seed companies tell the farmers, no, you're leasing the use of the seed. You don't get to own it. Right. And I then, um, we passed it out of the House and it went over to the Senate and Peter Welsh was the president pro tem. And he actually, uh, he came up to me in the hall one day about a week after the House passed and said, David, can you make these calls stop? I mean, we're getting calls left and right to take up this bill. I said, Peter, as soon as you tell me that your ag committee is going to take up this bill, I guarantee you I can get the word out and the calls will stop. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, David, let people know. We'll take it up next week. I don't promise it's going to pass, but I promise you'll get a fair hearing for a couple days. And I said, that's all I'm asking for. I appreciate it, and I'll let people know. And the next day, the phone calls stopped. And I have to say that probably was 
a moment that um, gave me more, quote, political power in that building than almost anything else that's ever happened. Because when people in that building recognize that an individual has hundreds, if not thousands of people around the state um, looking to them for guidance and how to influence the process, uh, that individual starts to gain a lot of power. Right. And uh, on GMOs, I've worked with people all over the state for, you know, 10 years at that point, and now almost 20 years. And um, people trust me on that issue, and they trust me on other issues. And so sometimes it's about, you know, the inside baseball, making deals, or I don't know if it's making deals, but, you know, agreeing to compromise. Um, but other times it's, it's knowing if you've got real clout by having citizens behind your effort, right. then you're in a much stronger bargaining position than most legislators. And, you know, I don't always have that position and that capacity, but, uh, you know, it's issue by issue. But, um, you know, you can get a lot more done when you know you've got people behind you. Well, and I think that's if we're going to take one lesson out of the 2016 election. You know, I mean, we're at a point now where Bernie has endorsed Hillary Clinton, but his email list, you know, his supporters, even if they're not all going to support Hillary and, and make those calls and be as fervent and active, right. you know, his clout has meant so much. And so I think that's something we can all take out and look is that, you know, this grassroots action really does matter. And that if you're out there dialing the phones on any issue, whether it's GMOs or pot laws or, you know, a livable Climate wage, change, livable wage, universal health care, you know, trade agreements, all of these and that, you know, if the politicians you're supporting are willing to help rally the troops, then you can have a real impact. And yep. I think that's what we've seen, you know, if we talk about the medical marijuana laws starting in the early 2000s. Right. You know, I mean, if you can take me back a little bit, how did you sort of become that that champion? And, you know, how, sure. how have you seen that evolve over the last 12 years? Well, the, you know, it's interesting. The medical law was really a curious one because I uh, had introduced a bill for a couple cycles. And it was in 2000 and uh, 2001, uh, actually 2002, maybe, when... Um, no, it was in 2000, sorry. And if we rewind this just for context, I mean, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, obviously, but medical <laughs> marijuana, this was California, were the, were the only ones, really. I think that's about it. And, and I had brought it up, and what was interesting was we had just come off of the election after civil unions had passed. Mm. And it was uh, 2000, uh, was the year of that election. It was a very uh, contentious time in Vermont. And in 2001, when the session started, the Republicans actually controlled the House in Vermont. And Howard Dean was governor, and the Democrats had held on to the Senate by a seat or two. And Howard Dean only held on by a couple percent. And uh, it was very interesting because I worked with my um, colleagues in the House, Republican leadership, on medical cannabis. And uh, the chair, Peg Flory, who's now a colleague of mine in the Senate, was chair of judiciary. And I talked to her a number of times about it, and she was open to the idea because she she sort of individual liberties due to your body what you want in some respects and uh and actually her son had crohn's disease huh and it turned out as the issue was moving along she and i talked a lot about the medical potential for the digestive system challenges that her son was having and how it might help with his appetite and help stabilize his ability to eat certain foods and uh ultimately the house passed it the Republican House was the first body to pass medical cannabis. Wow. Well, Anything is possible, guys. Well, and then... <laughs> you look behind the label. Well, and then the Democratic Senate uh, bottled it up 
but they knew there was this growing grassroots support out there and they had to do something, but they didn't want it to uh, move. And in part, I think politically, Howard Dean, who at that time was contemplating running for president, didn't want uh, that bill to come across his desk. Right. Um, whether it was because, I don't know if he was contemplating that yet, but he, he certainly wasn't wasn't supportive. And so, you know, sometimes as a governor, even if you think it's almost being supported in the public, if you don't want it, you get your friends in the chamber to, to kill it. And so they didn't quite kill it because they couldn't do that because the public supported it. But they said, well, let's do a study. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that delays things a little bit. Sometimes it lets the time move forward so that people are more comfortable. So they passed a study and the House passed that as well. And that went into effect. Well, a year later, the study came out. But, uh, and I guess this was the second year, so that must have been 2002, because that fall, there was an election, and um, Howard Dean moved on, and Jim Douglas became the governor. Right. And all of a sudden, I was getting some some headwinds in the house, Hmm. because Governor Douglas didn't really want the bill. Right. And so his now, Republican now colleagues Republican friends weren't are... as solid. And the Senate was, you know, a little more supportive. Mm-hmm. And so the Senate passed. It said, well, we've had this study. It showed that there's some potential medical benefits. We're going to pass the bill. And I went to the House uh, Republicans and I went to the same chair and said, you know, last year you said this was something important to you because you recognize the health issues and possible benefits. And uh, uh, I hope that you won't play politics with it and not move it because the governor doesn't want it because if you were moving it because you thought it was the right thing to do, then you should move it because you think it's the right thing to do. Right. Uh, and ultimately, they did move it. And I remember the floor fight. Um, the bill that was passed was quite restrictive, mm-hmm. um, but it was more less restrictive than uh, what ultimately came into law because one of my Republican colleagues on the floor got up and he was widely respected, uh, cock. Tom Koch from uh, Barry, and he said, you know, I don't think the governor will let this become law, and I'm offering an amendment that would make it more restrictive, and that might let it become law. Now, I felt that it was pretty restrictive as it was. The governor recognized that it was pretty restrictive and that uh, he probably would let it become law without a signature. We had a very long battle on the floor. Ultimately, I was a progressive supporting the committee's position, which was a little more liberal, although not much. And the um, versus a, a House uh, member who's well respected by the Republicans and many Democrats. And so I lost that fight, and we ended up with this law, which turned out to be one of the most restrictive medical cannabis right. laws in the country. Uh, it basically said only if you have uh, HIV, uh, glaucoma, maybe not glaucoma, no, it wasn't chronic glaucomas. wasting syndrome, right. and chemotherapy for cancer. Yeah, I think it, yeah. And that was it. No other possibilities. And, um, you know, that held for a while. And then slowly over time, right. we've, we've broadened the scope of ailments that doctors could recommend it for. You mm-hmm. know, they don't prescribe it because there's all kinds of issues around the right. world. And they don't recommend it. They just verify that you have one of these qualifying that's right. conditions. That's, that's right. That, yeah, thank you, you for that correction. Yep. That they may. And, well, you know, so that's the thing. It's, it's been such an evolution. And it's, it's uh, incremental progress. Year. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's the thing. A lot of people, especially this issue, has a lot of millennials out. You know, and we're the instant gratification generation. Um, and they don't know that history and and, and, and the right, they don't know, and they say, "Well, I want to see this happen now, and give me give me now." You know, Snapchat me that. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think that's really good perspective to keep in to keep in mind, and it makes me wonder, especially now. I see, you know, there's a lot of young 
this is there's a lot of young Vermonters who are getting into the race, um, which I think is exciting. One thing that surprised me and, and frankly kind of disappointed me is that a lot of them haven't taken a strong stand on this. And even if right. they are supportive personally, you know, they're they're a little nervous to, to get out there. Now, you know, you mentioned the district you were representing. You knew it was you knew it was supportive and, you know, that you had a good base and you had already lost once, you know, so you did take your knocks on it. But what advice would you have to, you know, some of especially these younger politicians who are wondering, can I really get elected in in Windsor County? You know, if I if I say how I really feel about this, you know, or can I get well, elected somewhere? I think, and, I think the main thing, there's two pieces of advice. One is if you've got the facts on your side, take a position and argue the facts. And I think we have the facts on our side on this issue. I think there are some legitimate concerns, but I think they can be addressed through good policy and management. And that, frankly, those concerns should exist today under the unregulated free-for-all system that we have and that in fact those concerns can be better managed in a regulated uh, environment but uh, but you've got to be ready with the facts and I believe the majority of the state uh, is thoughtful recognizes that a managed system I mean look at alcohol I think most of us would agree that a managed system even with its problems is better than prohibiting alcohol right. and or creating an underground illegal alcohol system even if it wasn't a criminal system, uh, you know, a decriminalized system. And that the current system is a complete failure. Young people buy it easily, more easily than alcohol, and they buy it from someone who doesn't care what its potency is and might not know and doesn't know what to tell you, doesn't care or know if it's laced with something else, may even want to lace it with something else to hook you on it, doesn't know if it's how old it is, how strong it is, what kind it is. Got mold and spores. Um, all or, kinds you know, of potential kind challenges. Of on it. Yeah. And so what chemicals are used to grow it? And, uh, and they don't check ID. You know, right. they don't care. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, 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 it's a free-for-all. And so I think if, if young people or anybody who supports it arms themselves with the facts and talks about how the vast majority of adults can use this responsibly, just like the vast majority of adults use, use alcohol responsibly. In fact, probably a higher percentage use cannabis responsibly than alcohol. Uh, yeah, um, well, responsibly for sure. Right. <laughs> you um, know, but. And, and that, uh, you know, the state could use some of those resources to help with our opiate addiction problem, with true factual drug prevention in our mm -hmm. schools, with law enforcement issues around driving, whether intoxicated on anything. You know, it's not about pot. It's about being intoxicated on heroin or alcohol. Uh, and have you know folks that could evaluate if you're a safe driver or not, regardless of which drug it is, uh, that we would have the resources for that. Right. And it's an economy that's already there, so why not bring it above board and help our tourism industry uh, legitimize people who are currently making a living and not paying their income taxes like most of us are on, mm -hmm. on our businesses that we run. Um, so I would say for young people or anybody who supports it, arm yourself with the facts and take a stand. Yeah. I mean, statistically, you know, you talk about prevalence. We're, I don't know if you saw this stat, second for annual consumption in the country behind Colorado. I believe it. Third in monthly consumption behind Colorado and Washington, D.C., um, which I thought was just, was perfect. So, you know, to hammer that home. And I want to know, you've been going, this is, you know, on the statewide campaign. I did have just one more point oh, on yeah, what yeah, they yeah. should please, do. Please, please, please. So, um... And the other thing is, if you support it, but you don't campaign indicating you support it, then what I have seen over and again in the legislature is colleagues say, you know, I'm with you, 
But I didn't tell my constituents that's where I was. Right. And so I've got to vote more cautiously until I feel out my constituents more. And that delays it another couple of years. And I just think that, you know, if you're straightforward about it, it's a topic that's being talked about. Ask your constituents where they feel. Give them information and say, do you still feel that way? Or do you see that in Colorado, drug use across the board has actually slightly gone down right. since cannabis was legalized? Not to say that cannabis caused that to go down. But the point is, the sky didn't fall, and it certainly didn't go up right. um, with teenagers' use, which is one of the big fears. And so if you can alleviate those fears, and you can say, yeah, there have been some emergency room visits when children ate candies that looked just like a kid's candy. Okay, let's not do let's that. Let's not do that. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's a change. You know, we can learn from Colorado, and most of the Colorado folks have said, look, the short-term lessons are there to be learned. They're not that huge. We can learn them. You can learn them. Well, Unless even, you want to wait 20 years, there's really no point in waiting any right. longer. Well, and, you know, I mean, two things. Washington learned from Colorado. They have gummies, but they're in, you know, different flavors. You know, mm -hmm. kids aren't eating the, the chili powder, you know, or they have some bizarre right. flavors that they've mixed in there. But um, Or whether you don't let them look like a kid's candy at all. I right. Mean, ultimately, I, right. I can live with that. You know, exactly. Or, you know, I mean, just like you don't let your kids get into the liquor cabinet, you know, store your things responsibly as, a, as an adult and as a parent. Right. Right. Um, I want to talk about as we wrap up here, because I know how busy you are. I'm good. You're good. Statewide campaign. You know, you're barnstorming up and down all over the place. I talk to people in St. Jay. I talk to people in Bennington. I talk to people in Jay and everywhere in between. I hear a lot of the same things, you know, the same. What do you hear? I'm, well, I'm, con you know, yeah, it makes sense. But I'm concerned about what do we do about driving, you know, or, um, Hey, let's just tax and let's just tax and legalize it already. You know, who cares? It's not a big deal. It's it's right. Vermont. Like, and yeah, I think that's are, a lot of the practical. Those are the different sides for sure. Well, and I want to know, you know, as a progressive and as someone who's worked hard on social justice issues, to me it seems like this is really a class issue. You know, that at the heart of it, this is a big part of it. That the people who consume cannabis, we've been conditioned to think they are of a lesser class. You know, that hmm. they're they're lower than us. They're less. People so that you're drink. talking social class, not economic class. I am. I okay. am. Yeah. Um, well, and economic as well. You know, I mean, brewing, your own, a, brewing your own beer, there's still cost entry. But, yeah. put, you know, I know plenty of people who can put seeds in the ground, you know, who don't have a, you know, sunlight's free all day. But there's plenty of people that have economic resources that also smoke it and buy it, and they know they're probably going to be fine even if the cops bust them because they've got the resources to take it on in court and win. Right. Or so, they're, you know, trying to get into the business right now and, yeah so and i don't i don't know it. that I, I think cannabis is consumed across all economic spectrums i talked with some farmers in franklin but do you think County. politically that it's a you know that is a political topic i mean even just the people that you're going to hear from and the people that are going to stand up well the ones you're going to hear from are the politically empowered class mm -hmm. and uh and also you're going to hear more from the na the no side than the yes side because there's a stigma about it you know if right. you're a teacher this spring, you didn't call your legislator and say, you know, you should support this. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Not, By the way, I'll not, see you at teacher conferences in two weeks, right? Yeah, you know, because you don't want someone saying, you know, the person teaching our kids, you know, wants our kids to smoke pot. Well, that's not what the teacher said. Right. You know, but the teacher is at risk of, you know, potentially being stigmatized or ostracized or losing their job um, because of a, a falsely created rumor around, oh, my God, this person works with our kids and they want to smoke pot. Well, wait a minute. When you go home at the end of the day on Friday or Saturday night and you have a beer or you smoke a joint 
with your family, you know, your, your spouse, I should say. Um, <laughs> well, it depends how old you are, you know. <laughs> um, you know, or some adult friends, you know. Um, so what? You know? And that doesn't impact your ability to do your job, whether you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're a business person, you're an engineer. There's a lot of people out there that, that sort of couldn't say, you know, yeah. Right. I do this now. Right. Or... It would be okay, and in fact, if it was legal, then sure, I would do it on occasion, just like I drink mm-hmm. beer and wine on occasion. Um, because the stigma against that, from a professional perspective, is quite significant. And I think you know people certainly can go into the voting box this election cycle right. and make it clear uh, if they've got clear choices. Um, and there you have the safety of anonymity. Yeah. Anonymity. Well, you mentioned you mentioned it farmer before and that's one, yeah, of the, so one of the biggest parts of your campaign i know which... there's a farmer in franklin county a dairy farmer pulled me aside after a big dairy meeting last year up at the state house and he said hey is this bill gonna pass i said which bill he said the pot bill i said well i'm trying you know i think we have a decent shot getting it through the senate but the house is gonna be tough i tried to coach uh speaker smith that he ought to take up the issue early with the rand report and start getting his health committee and his human services committee and his education committee and his judiciary committee to look at the issues through the RAND report for a few days so that they're ready for when the bill comes. Uh, and he didn't do that. And uh, I think that was, it was an uphill battle anyway. And that, by not softening the ground a little bit, I think that really hurt the chances. And I told this farmer that because he said, look, I've got, you know, we're sitting here at the in, in the interval uh, with a bunch of barns around, and a lot of farmers have a lot of barns. Some have cows, some have storage <laughs> equipment, some have other stuff. And he said, look, i got a couple rooms in one of my barns that I could convert and, you know, make some money if it was legal and I was legitimate and it would really help stabilize my farm income. I, you know, I work with plants all the time, and I know how to work with, you know, electronics and equipment. And, uh, you know, so, you know, what do you think? I said, well, I'd love to, but um, I, I don't know. Yeah. And he said, he actually said to me, you know, my wife and I split. She was having all kinds of issues. She was into alcohol. She was unhappy. She was a lot of stuff. We finally ultimately split. She stopped drinking alcohol, started smoking sometimes, and she's just much calmer. Uh, she's happier in her life. She's not addicted, smoking all the time, but, um, you know, it was much calmer for her than alcohol. Mm-hmm. And they're back together. Yeah. So, A, he talked about in terms of his relationship and their kids. Uh, in terms of being parents that were together again, and B, as an economic opportunity for himself as a farmer. And, um, you know, this was a guy who 100% disagrees with me on other <laughs> agricultural policy, uh, you know, conventional dairy farmer, and, and sometimes you know, disagreed with me on my GMO policies and was more than ready to work with me and talk to me about this bill. And um, so I think it it politically crosses all kinds of boundaries. I guess that's yeah. the nutshell of some of that story. No, it, well, I think you're right, and that's one thing that has surprised me and why I brought up with the class is that, you know, I hear poor farmers and, you know, wealthy Chittenden County folks, you know, beating the same drum and singing the same tune, and people who might disagree on 85 to 90% of everything else yep. who can see this as, as an issue. And Well, and, and I'll say politically, there was kind of a, a, a decision made a year ago to say, you know, we need to focus on the issues around youth prevention and the issues around driving while intoxicated and point out how we would be better off with an, you know, an educated, legal, recreational, and regulated system. Um, Or I should say responsible use, not recreational. That's right. Um, and, um, And we went with that route. But I think for a lot of Vermonters, they actually also see all of those things 
and the economic development potential. From the farmer that I just talked about to most of southern Vermont who has access to a marketplace that could drive two hours, stay at a bed and breakfast for the weekend, go on hiking trails and, and buy a mm-hmm. small bag for the weekend and enjoy Vermont. And the bed and breakfast increases, the skiing tourism increases, the canoeing and kayaking and all the outdoor adventure folks who would come to Vermont that are within a couple hours driving distance. You know, huge economic development far beyond buying pot. Right. You know, right. That's that's the least. That's the least of it. Yeah, I mean, if you've got when uh, you have mountain biking fest in, in East Burke or up in Jay this weekend. Yeah. You know, I mean, people roll in on. I mean, it's a great demographic. People with two thousand dollar mountain bikes coming to your town anytime. That's right. But they're the ones who I see at you know, at the uh, go get ahead at, at Mike's Tiki Bar. You know, I see them. They're the ones. That they're pay, they're doing Airbnb. You know, yep. directly supporting locals. The yep. bed and breakfast, all, all yeah, this stuff. whether it be Airbnb or commercial bed and breakfast or hotels, the ski industry, the mountain bike festivals, the, you know, all the canoeing and kayaking and hiking that people do in Vermont. You know, people can go to New Hampshire, they can go to Maine, they can go to New York, they can go to Vermont. Well, and, and in Maine, you know, that's, you know, I mean, they may we'll, beat we'll, us to it now. we'll see if they, if they take a hit and what the numbers, you know, no pun intended, that's what right. the numbers look like. I mean, we are geographically much better situated than Maine. Yes. You know. Maine could draw some of the Boston crowd just like we could and some of the Connecticut crowd. Uh, but we've got the New York and New Jersey potential crowd that, you know, two, three hours, four hours away, whereas for Maine, those start being five, six, seven-hour drives. Well, for a weekend, that's a big difference. Right. And that's one of the big differences between Colorado and here is that, you know, if you're going to go to Colorado, that's a week. It's a flight. It's, you know, once, once in the year or once every few years. You know, you might get people that want to come to Vermont three, four, five, six weekends of the year. Yeah, oh, yeah, uh, exactly. Or dozens, you know, if they're skiers. You know, I don't know if you know this statistic, but 100,000 skier visits equals $40 million of economic activity. Wow. 100,000 skiers, one person one, coming one for one One person, day. one night from out of state is about $400. Uh, between renting a room, buying gas, buying some food, a dinner and a breakfast and a lunch out at the, mm-hmm. you know, resorts or at restaurants. Uh, maybe they buy a pair of ski boots. Maybe, you know, some do, some don't. But the average adds up to be uh, $400 per out-of-state night visit. So you add 100,000 people coming to Vermont, that's $40 million of economic activity. You know, that's chambermaid jobs, restaurant jobs, retail shop jobs, ski area jobs. That's taxes that we then don't have to raise from Vermonters. That's gas, gas taxes. You know, there are, I think the potential is well beyond 100,000 skier visits. I actually think it's two, 300,000 skier visits. And that's just one industry. Right. And that's both the straight up jobs and the ancillary revenue for the state where other, right now, under both Governor Douglas and Governor Shumlin and Speaker Schapp running the House, we have increased fees on car registrations and fishing licenses and permits for businesses and everything under the sun uh, to raise revenue without, quote, broad-based taxes. Well, people are taxed out. Mm -hmm. And this is an existing economy that could come above board, pay its fair share of taxes, and probably expand our economy in ways we can't even imagine. Uh, There's HVAC jobs, you know, retrofitting warehouses and old barn rooms to have good airflow and circulation. There's greenhouses to build. There's solar panels to put up to try to have a greener footprint. You know, there are... I mean, everybody involved with food and natural products and, you know, every kind of craft, artisanal industry. Not that you add pot to everything, and it's great, but 
there are so many entrepreneurs, and in Vermont, you got to make your own way, you know. And there are a lot of people who yeah. I know would would love to do it in this. And I I wonder, you clearly stand out from from your opponents in this race on this issue. It's it's not even close. It's obvious. But for some of our listeners who might be less familiar, you know, some of the other ways that you clearly stand out from Speaker Smith, Schapp, right. who's Outside running, and, and, and Keisha and sure. Keisha Rum. You know, I mean, you're. You're a farmer, you're a well, progressive. there's a couple different things. I mean, certainly I started a small business. I started a farm here in the Intervale, actually, just a couple acres of production. I learned how to grow the food, sell the food, you know, market it, figure out the numbers at the end of the year. Uh, and I've grown that into a 20 acres of vegetables, 50 pigs, 1,000 chickens, 10 employees in the summer, three-year round. Uh, you know, a legitimate small business here in Vermont, the backbone of Vermont are these kinds of businesses. Uh, different arenas but you know five ten people and um you know i'm the only one in this race who's working while running for office uh you know i don't know that many vermonters that can take three to nine months off from their job to run for office uh and i think i represent that reality for a lot of folks uh i've also served in the senate Uh, neither of my opponents have and i understand the goings-on of the senate and um you know it's a very different body than the house it's much less partisan Uh, Everybody really needs everybody. There's only 30 people to get all the work done. Uh, Having served as a progressive in the House, I only got things done by working with people from both other parties in a way that, you know, hardcore Democrats, they can ultimately work pretty much within the party to get things done. They they make reach outs to the Republicans, but they don't need to as much. Uh, And in the Senate, it's just a very different feel. So um, I think I bring a lot of those things to the table. I've got experience bringing controversial topics up that the political class wasn't ready for and being patient and giving information and using grassroots support, working with people all over the state to engage in the process to pass those issues. So whether it was marriage equality, where I teamed up with those organizers, end of life choices, raising the minimum wage, GMO labeling and GMO regulation, those are all bills that the political class wasn't ever really that excited about. But people involved in the process, much like Bernie's been talking about uh, nationwide, is what's made those things happen. And uh, all of my opponents in this race talk about bringing more people into the process. Uh, And I think all of us genuinely would like to do that. But only one of us has years of experience doing that, has a track record of doing that, and not only doing it, but doing it successfully on some of the biggest issues Vermont's dealt with over the last 20 years. And uh, so to be able to take that experience and bring it to a whole new level, whereas as uh, Lieutenant Governor, you preside over the Senate for an hour or two a day, well, you've got six or seven hours a day to either be in the state house, bringing people to the state house, helping them learn the building and how to communicate with their legislators and engage in the process, or traveling the state and going to different people's districts and generating support in those districts for issues, whether it be cannabis reform or you know moving towards universal health care, working towards why we need more affordable housing throughout the state uh, for economic stability for families and to really build, rebuild our communities, or whether it's around climate change issues. You know, I think that's a real reason. I think that's something that people lose a lot in the, in the lieutenant governor, you know, sort of position people who are less familiar and don't right. understand the potential that you really have to affect policy. That's where the potential you is. Know, because that's it. You so don't if, if you want to see these issues move forward, you know, then voting for your local representative is, is great and they will do everything they can to move it forward. You know, but you that's that's your full time job. You, have, mean, it's you a, have a statewide audience as lieutenant governor that you don't have as representative, clearly. And, you know, as a rep, I was very fortunate uh, by being outspoken. People saw me more because of some of those other issues. They saw me in the media. I used to get, I still get emails from 
all over the state, phone calls from all over the state say, you know, I saw you on TV, you were leading on this issue. I don't even know who my local rep is, but can you help me with this issue? Or can mm -hmm. you tell me how to get involved in that issue? And I would help make those connections to the, uh, whether it's groups that were working to move the issue they were talking about, whether it was a legal advocate for the concern they were bringing up, whether it was someone in state government who could help solve the challenge they were facing in state government. You know, it was really interesting as you become higher profile, people call you from outside your own district and you can't just let them go. Right. You know, you try to help them and connect them with their legislator. I mean, sometimes it was not handing them off. It was like, hey, you know, this person is a good legislator. They'll help you. I can't do everything. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people in the state and you have no staff as a rep or senator. Um, but having that experience for 18 years across the state um, and to be able to expand upon that as lieutenant governor is an incredible opportunity that I'm excited to, to have. Dave Zuckerman running for lieutenant governor uh, August 9th. As a reminder, everybody can get out and vote right now. Uh, you can request a ballot be mailed to your house. You can stop in the town clerk. So there's really no excuse not to vote, as they say, vote early, vote often. We get <laughs> well, to vote that much earlier. And, vote early. You know, exactly. Uh, but, you know, and you can also register to vote on your smartphone, call up the, uh, or call your town clerk uh, and go in. But you can register through the Secretary of State's website. And you can register to vote today so that you, you can hear that, vote millennials? So that you can vote <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, like Eli just said, you don't have to go in on August 9th. It ends on August 9th at 7 o'clock. When that time comes, I'm in or I'm out. And frankly, if more people vote, I can tell you I'm going to be in. And if fewer people vote, uh, the establishment's going to win, uh, and they're going to probably not support me. Uh, they, they've shown that they don't support me as a, as a party. Uh, the political class is not as excited about me because I'm willing to be out there on the issues and really talk about people power, not corporate power. And um, so if you want to see change, uh, then I hope you'll register and you'll vote. Beautiful. David Zuckerman, thank you again for your time. You bet. All right, all right. So that was the interview with Dave Zuckerman. Like I said, I, I hope everybody enjoyed that. You know, he's one of my favorite Vermont politicians and politicians in general because he's an interesting guy, because, you know, I'm somebody who's pretty cynical about politics a lot of the time. I see a lot of bullshit. I see a lot of people, you know, who are just sucking up, who are saying what they think people want to hear instead of speaking the truth. And I like Dave because even if you don't always agree with him, you know where he stands and you know why he's doing what he's doing and he's out there. So I think it was a really interesting conversation. I was pumped to talk to him. Thank you again, Dave. And if you're here in Vermont, take a look at his campaign. Take a look at his materials. I'm sure you'll find something you'll agree with. If you listen to this podcast and you're voting based on cannabis, it's not even close. He's the only one who's out there, much, so, much more so than his opponents, but more so than anybody else in any other statewide race a guy who's talking common sense and who you know will continue to support it as he has done for the last 20 years. So thank you again to all of everybody for paying attention and tuning in. Thanks again to David Zuckerman, and we will talk to you all soon with a special edition, Episode 5, Vermontawana, Elevate the State. Elevate.